Hello, everyone. It's uh, Larry Kotlikoff. I'm delighted to have my uh, good friend Robert Pinsky, uh, Poet Laureate of the United States, uh, not current Poet Laureate, but Poet Laureate. We have an every year Poet Laureate uh, with us today to talk about poetry and, and uh, education and poetry and uh, his background and his new book, uh, Jersey Breaks, Becoming an American Poet which was published uh, October, 2022. And it's still available at all the top places to go, local bookstore or uh, Amazon or Indie, uh, any, of the, any of the outlets. Uh, use something besides Amazon if you can, because we wanna try and preserve American books or go to your local bookstore. Uh, but anyway, let me give you a quick uh, bio for Robert. Uh, okay, the new book, again, Jersey Breaks. He's from New Jersey. Uh, and so I'm from New Jersey. He, we're different parts of New Jersey, but uh, we have, you'll probably recognize a similar accent. Uh, Jersey Breaks, Becoming an American Poet was published in October, 2022. Who's the, pub who's the publisher, Robert? Uh, Norton, W.W. Norton and Company. Norton, and Norton is a, a, old-time publisher in the sense that they've been around for probably over a century, maybe longer. They're one of the most distinguished publishers in the world. And we academics know Norton really well because they're publishing academic, a lot of academics works uh, more than any other major trade book publisher. Uh, I think that's a fair statement. There's Wiley, there's Simon & Schuster, but uh, Norton is more of a special specializer, uh, Princeton University Press, but that's an academic press. But Norton is uh, the the place to be publishing to the public if you're an academic, really. Uh, Robert's books on poetry, this is not his first book. Uh, this is his six books, six? Anyway, here's the list. Uh, at the Foundling Hospital, at the Foundling Hospital, selected poems. Golf music, G-U-L-F, music. So it's not for golfing. Uh, and the figured wheel. So we have one, two, three, four, five books. Uh, and then he's the finalist for a Pulitzer Prize uh, for the figured wheel. His best-selling translation is the Inferno of Dante. So if you're interested in reading Dante in English, and I've read it in, but not your translation. I'll go back and read your translation. I'm sure it's much more fun and 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 on target. His Tanner lectures at Princeton University were published in book form at Democracy, Culture, and the Voice of Poetry. So now we're, I think, up to seven books. That's quite a few. On the subject of publishers, Larry, I'll just introduce you. I'm very proud. Be uh, my prose and thought my anthologies <clears throat> have mostly been published by Norton, which is unique. In addition to what you said about being a trade house that sells a lot of books that are used in colleges and universities, Norton is also employee owned. Huh. And it is, in my mind, one of the last publishers driven by literary values or what used to be the nature of publishing and the other one I'm very happy to say 
is Farr, Strauss, and Giroux, the publisher of uh, my books of poems, including my uh, selected poems and the book that's coming out in May. So I feel uniquely blessed in having um, Farrah Strauss and Norton and Farrah Strauss, one of the last high-class literary writers who's also has been, I think he's now editor-in-chief or CEO emeritus, uh, but a poet and fiction writer, John Galassi. And uh, my editor at Norton is a poet, Jill Bieloski. Uh, and uh, those are two institutions. As institutions go, it's possible to admire. So since you mentioned publishers, I'll say that uh, I'm really truly in favor of Forrest Rouse and Norton, not just because they are my publishers. Uh, yeah, got it. Well, they're they're definitely praiseworthy, and amen that they're with us. Uh... And hang I don't on. know if he. I don't know if he's still a CEO at Norton, but for a long time there was John Galassi at Farrah Strauss and Drake McFeely, this son of a very distinguished historian and a very very literate person. Yeah, Drake. Uh, I, Drake, I know uh, quite well. I uh, hope he's doing okay. And uh, so you know what I'm talking about. Drake, uh, I, these I, are I, not. I, yeah. These are not. Um, these are people who know a lot about writing. Yeah, I got very close to, to publishing uh, one or two books with uh, with Drake at Norton, but uh, never never did. Uh, but any, anyway, uh, the one of the uh, other minor aspects of Robert Pinsky is that he was poet laureate of the United States. Do we say that you were or that you are? Oh no, I'm, in, I'm a past poet laureate. Past poet, okay, did, yeah. What year was that? Uh, between ninety nine and two thousand. At the time, I was the only person to do it three times. Uh, it was I, I. It was during the year two thousand. My three times. So we had the uh, we had the anniversary of the country or the that, and we had the millennial year. We did various things with that office well, that's a good a good year to be a poet laureate uh yeah he made at, if you go to, to favoritepoem.org uh during this i guess period he he made a number of videos at favorite poem favorite poem one word.org uh and he was featuring people from many walks of life reading poems by the likes of william shakespeare pablo neruda frank o'hara and Gwendolyn Brooks. So uh, I guess the key question that many people watching this podcast might be asking is, why uh, does a podcast with the title Economics Matters, the podcast, uh, why is that having a, a poet, let alone Robert Pinsky, as part of the feature guests? And well, one reason is that I think this podcast, even the, regardless of its title, should just have really interesting, important, pe cool people that can add to our lives and inspire us. And Robert's certainly that, but also uh, it turns out that poetry has 
a tradition of being connected to economics, at least, uh, at least that's what Robert Frost thought, right? So Robert was going to start out our podcast here with a poem from Robert Frost, if I have it right, about economics, uh, about money. And then I would want to uh, ask Robert to do uh, two things. One is to tell us about his background, how he got into poetry, how he ended up at Boston University. Uh, this is where I met him. Uh, he's a university professor, or so am I. We're, we're called Warren professors after the first president, the founder of Boston University. So that's where we really met. And, uh, and then we connected over financial planning issues. Uh, and then we're becoming uh, good buddies. But um, Warren, I mean, I'll ask uh, Robert to tell us, to recite the poem, but also tell us about his childhood and development, uh, transition to becoming a poet, a poet, how he ends up at Boston University, and then about his latest book. And then we'll start then I will think of questions, you will think of questions, and we will just start talking. Okay, let's start with a poem that does, that is about money and uh, includes the words stock exchange. Provide, provide. The witch that came, the withered hag, to wash the steps with pail and rag, was once the beauty Abishag the picture pride of Hollywood. <clears throat> Too many fall from great and good for you to doubt the likelihood. Die early and avoid this state, avoid the fate. Or if predestined to die late, make sure that you can die in state. Make the whole stock exchange your own. And if need be, acquire a throne where nobody can call you crone. <laughs> some have relied on what they knew, some on simply being true. What worked for them might work for you. Better to go down dignified with bought in friendship at your side than none at all. Provide, provide. Um, and uh, maybe uh, introducing it by saying it has the word stock exchange. Maybe even more uh, amusing and interesting is that uh, in its conclusion, it has the words "button friendship. Uh, Frost's genius for using kind of slightly uh, rural or archaic sounding language like "button," and to sound plain spoken at the same time. And uh, it's hard to say if he's embracing a harsh, somewhat crass view of the world or mocking that view or always the most likely thing, both at once, all of the above. <laughs> die early and avoid the fate <laughs> or if predestined to die late. <laughs> That amuses me every time that having a long life is being predestined to dilate. And if you do have that destiny, make sure that you can die in state. Um, and for me, the poem 
the poem is part of my view of poetry, which is the part of answering the question of why a, a podcast about money and economic matters should include such a thing. For me, it it has to do with good administration, good government, good personal planning, like good poetry, should does well not to leave things out. And one of the things I like about poetry is nothing is forbidden. Nothing is not to be considered. And uh, when my friend Larry Kotlikoff decides to uh, devote time to poetry in his podcast, it makes me think even more of him, if that were possible, as someone who thinks about worldly matters, like how to provide. Uh, if you tend to accept conventional boundaries and uh, don't include everything possible, it will make your poetry less impressive, I think, and it will make your understanding of worldly matters like money less impressive. So the more inclusive, the better. Want more money, less risk, and a better life? Buy Money Magic, a new book by Lawrence Kotlikoff, Boston University economist, personal finance expert, and best-selling author. Whether it's education, career, marriage, housing, investing, retirement, social security, IRA or 401k decisions, Money Magic delivers scores of secrets to raise your living standard. Financial journalist Jane Bryant Quinn says Money Magic is a must read. Nobel laureate George Akerlof says Money Magic is quite probably the best financial advice book ever written. Financial guru John Malden says, you'll love this amazing book. It's full of wit, wisdom, and startling paths to a better financial life. And columnist Scott Burns calls Money Magic a funny, brilliant read, offering wildly powerful, unconventional choices that can literally change your life. Get Lawrence Kotlikoff's Money Magic today at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and independent booksellers. <laughs> and poetry, before you... Give us some history of uh, Robert Pinsky. What, what, how would you define poetry? Because I was just thinking when, as you were speaking that poetry in some sense must be, and I know nothing really about poetry. So you're dealing with a total ignoramus on the other end here uh, when it comes to uh, literature and poetry, because I've been so focused on economics through my career. Uh, so it's it's time for me to, expand my horizons but it just occurred to me that poetry is trying to when you say nothing's off off limits it's it's also that it's a uh, kind of way to describe our reality and certainly economics and financial survival is part of our reality so in some sense it has to be part of poetry if we we're if poetry but but what is your definition of poetry is it is it the way I'm thinking that it's uh, uh, just a different form of just of kind of engaging with reality and and uh, describing it? Uh, or... That's good. That's good. I would tend to have a different emphasis. Uh, the famous formulas about poetry are what you just said plus what I'm about to say. That is, 
instruction and pleasure. I'm going to emphasize pleasure and accuse you, Professor Kotlikoff, of being a victim of teaching. When you were three years old and five years old, when you were an infant, you enjoyed poetry. You didn't feel things like, oh, I don't really understand. I don't know poetry. A poem is a work of art made out of the sounds of a language. The way dancing is art made out of the way bodies move. Poetry is like music, cuisine, lovemaking as distinct from procreation. It takes something everybody uses all day long, the way we use our phones. In the old days, it was coins and dollar bills. And it makes a work of art out of it. We eat to survive, but really we eat to have it be a pleasure. That's what poetry is. What Frost is talking about in Provide and Provide, Provide is a reality that life is a lot more pleasant and the latter part of life in particular is a lot more pleasant if you can combine good luck, calculation, intelligence, and fortune to provide for your material needs and desires. Saying that the way I just did is a yawn. Saying it the way he does with those amazing triple rhymes that sound effortless is a pleasure. It sounds good. I have learned, and this is in Jersey Breaks, I've learned that if you're holding an infant, one comfort the infant, one hand in the back of the head, one hand, one arm under the ass, you pretty much intuitively croon or sing to comfort the infant. I've learned that if you recite Sailing to Byzantium by William Butler Yeats, or <laughs> Further in Summer Than the Birds by Emily Dickinson, the child indicates the same kind of pleasure as if you're singing or crooning. And that infant already is terrifically interested in the sounds of language and that the sounds of language can be kind of musical in a way uh, makes it all the more fascinating. So you, Professor Kalanikov, you were taught that you don't know anything about poetry or you don't know how to read poetry. And when I actually gave you an actual taste of it, when I gave you the spoonful of provide, provide, just like that infant, you had a good time. <laughs> you I'm smiled. Sorry. You were happy. <laughs> I would immediately, let's get you on the podcast because you're fun. This oh. is great. And feel free throughout this hour to yeah, break. You knew me. You knew me before I recited that poem to you. You didn't ask me to be in your podcast. After I recited 
The witch well, that came know. with withered hag, he came to write, wash the steps with pail and rag, was once the beauty Abishag. You lit up a bit. <laughs> Absolutely. No, that's true. And feel free to break out in poetry at any moment during this hour. Uh, the, um, but tell us a bit about uh, where is Robert Pinsky born exactly in New Jersey, and how did you end up at Boston University along the way? I was born on the Jersey Shore. Um, further east by a lot than where you, your origins, as I remember, in uh, Trenton. Uh, well, Pensacola, New Jersey, near Camden. Yes, yeah. right. Um, Long Branch, New Jersey, uh, has been the summer capital of the United States. There's a church there that's now a museum where Lincoln went, Garfield, Gar Brandt went quite a lot. Um, Garfield died in Long Branch. He was shot in a, the train station in Washington when he was trying to get to Long Branch for the summer. Uh, mm. One of the most beautiful paintings in the Museum of Fine Arts here in Boston is by Winslow Homer. It's entitled Long Branch, New Jersey. <laughs> really? Yeah, there's the two women up on the bluff that I know well with their bustles and their little dog, and down in the water, people in the bathing machines. So I'm a uh, like my father before me, Milford Pinsky, optician of Long Branch, New Jersey. I'm a Long Branch chauvinist. Uh, his father, Dave Pinsky, when I knew him, had a prominent little bar on Broadway in Long Branch. Uh, across the street from the police station, where time, uh, when I was a child, I somehow knew that the man who was chief of police had been a colleague of my grandfather, Dave, my Zadie Pops, in the illegal business, illegal liquor business uh, during Prohibition <laughs> back in the 20s. And that's how the Pinskys came to Long Branch. Uh, my grandpa, Dave Pinsky, who I called Zadie Pop to distinguish him from my Zadie, my mother's father, uh, my father and his brothers and sisters called Dave Pop. And uh, Pop in Newark, uh, as a very young man, teenager, went to work for a man named Longies Wilman. Uh, Longies Wilman was the mob head of Newark, and uh, he uh, controlled the liquor business in Newark. And Longies Wilman, Longie based on the Yiddish word for tall, uh, Longies Wilman had boats that went from Canada to the New Jersey shore uh, with genuine whiskey in them. And every one of those boats and also trucks uh, usually had some young man uh, holding a weapon of some kind. So my grandfather uh, was the armed man on boats and trucks that went from Canada to the Jersey shore and Dave Pinsky looked at the Jersey Shore and decided that he liked it. It was better than Newark. 
So that's how the family came there. And uh, my mother and father met at Long Branch High School. My brother and sister, my cousins, my aunts and uncles all went to Long Branch High School. My dad and I had the same English teacher. Oh, my God. Miss Scott. Well, same same homeroom teacher in Miss Scott. And uh, when he was a senior at Long Branch High School, somebody came into his Miss Scott's homeroom with a notice anybody interested in becoming an optician uh go see dr alexander weinberg downtown and my father said i think he it's true that he thought optician had to do with teeth i see anyway my father it should be mentioned in the class poll at long branch high school was voted best looking boy and, <laughs> <That's>... <laughs> He and his friend Herbie Becker went downtown to audition for this job, you know, basically grinding lenses and repairing eyeglasses for Dr. Weinberg. And my father, who all his life was a careful dresser, asked his famously sloppy friend Herbie, Herbie, do you mind if we stop at my house on the way downtown? I'd like to change my shirt. So my father stopped off and while Herbie waited, he put on a nice shirt, combed his hair, washed his face, and he got the job. He got the job. Dress for success. Right. As I, as I tell in Jersey Breaks, um, in 1947, when I was seven years old, my sister was two years old, my father still had that job. Uh, as an optician, you know, it's not examining eyes. You're not a doctor, you're a tradesperson. Right. Uh, Dr. Weinberg told him, uh, Milford, I'm going to have to let you go. Uh, I'm running for mayor, and it's important to me that I hire an Italian war veteran. Well, mm -hmm. and my father got fired in 1947. Oh. And he, uh, you know, between his father's bar and uh, he was an, an athlete, he had played sports with a guy named uh, John Smuck, with the, whose family had a lot to do with the bank. My father got a little bank loan uh, and he used to quote the guy who gave him and saying, well, Milford, you're a Long Branch boy. And he started a little optical shop. He worked hard. He sold hearing aids too for a good while, and um, he thrived. <laughs> so he had a he was an optician and had an optical. He was selling. I guess yeah, I, and I had, as I as I tell in in Jersey Breaks, we lived in a multi-family dwelling on the coastline between a black neighborhood and uh, a neighborhood of uh, multifamily houses, some rooming houses, house painters, pizza cooks. It was not the suburban dream. And um, many friends of my mother and father had that suburban dream of buying a ranch house in the suburbs while we were still living in this apartment on uh, Rockwell Avenue, which was 
a relatively rough street turns out to have been uh, a good place to grow up in many ways for me. Uh, but they, a misery, I'm trying to talk in the frame of economics, a misery for that family was she got pregnant again and it's a two-bedroom apartment in a dicey neighborhood. It's a two-bedroom apartment and there are now five people. So these are, these are your neighbors? This is this is my family. This is your family? I see. My mother and father, for a time, slept in the bedroom with my brother. My sister and I had another bedroom. Those are the two bedrooms, and uh, so we had another. And then, yeah. Uh, so pressures, you know, I couldn't yet. I wasn't old enough to imagine the. Uh, effect that would have on a couple's sex life. Uh, but this, these were young, ambitious people, um, famously good-looking, good dancers, uh, funny people. Um, economics, the, the pressure to provide, provide, was considerable on them. And I hope, though I've never been a successful writer of fiction, I hope my understanding of economics enhanced by having lots and lots of black neighbors and having uh, an immediate uh, unreflecting in a way, but very clear, not theoretical experience of uh, different destinies for people given what their skin color is. I had a real daily experience of that. How financially secure do you feel? Imagine a tool to help you make smart financial decisions. A tool that factors in all your financial data and shows what you can safely spend every year for the rest of your life. That tool is Maxify. Powerful, accurate, and easy to use. Developed by Boston University economist Lawrence Kotlikoff, Maxify takes the guesswork out of financial decisions at every stage of life. Maxify calculates what you can afford to spend now and throughout retirement. And you can run what-if scenarios to see how your finances might change by taking a new job, buying a home, or downsizing. Knowing the impact before you decide lets you make smarter decisions so you can finally enjoy financial peace of mind. Are you ready? Visit Maxify.com today to start planning. That's Maxify with an I. M-A-X-I-F-I, maxify.com. So we'll come back to that uh, because of the affirmative action decision that just came down yesterday, uh, later. But um, tell us, so how do you go from Long Branch to um, poet, no, poet Laureate? How do you decide to become an academic, a poet? Uh, what I said to you, what I said to you. Not giving away all the contents of the book. Yeah, the book tries to tell the story of being guided by my same impulse that now as an elderly man, I say to you, that was there in me from the beginning to say, what would be fun? Where is the element of pleasure here? This was not always conducive to academic success. 
which I didn't experience. I was in the uh, the bad class in the eighth grade, also known as the dumb class. I tried to tell about that. My favorite review of Jersey Breaks um, was by Ron Slate, who said, this is a book about doing whatever you feel like doing, doing whatever you feel like doing uh, without worrying about the consequences. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't rob banks. I didn't go deep into drugs. I didn't commit crimes. But uh, I have, have a tendency to ask, is this going to be fun or not? And see how that works out. And I still sometimes am amazed, I'm knocking wood, you don't see the wood that I'm knocking, but I am, that it actually did work out. And it's very unlikely. Um, one of the, uh, one of my habits in that book and in life is to repeat certain jokes. And then I repeat the joke of I'm saying a repeated joke. And I right. can remember when we had the poetry night at the White House, and uh, we invited a lot of American poets and Rita Dove and Bob Hass and I read Walt Whitman and uh, Robert Hayden and Emily Dickinson uh, and Clinton, President Clinton and Hillary Clinton each read a poem and uh, Clinton walked us over to the residence to show my veterinarian daughter and the rest of the family, the first dog, Buddy. And we were walking there and uh, my long suffering wife, Ellen, had to hear again the joke. All of this just for ta-da, 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 ta-da. It <laughs> seemed unlikely, <laughs> but my, I mean, I started off attracted to music because that seemed fun. Uh, and then I tell in the book about the very quick transition from fantasies about being a great poet from being a great musician uh, based on uh, the only thing that held me back from being a really great jazz musician. The only obstacle was a deficiency of talent. <laughs> and, and so you... And, in high school or college, where did you go to high school? You went to Long Branch High School. And then you went to high school, did my dad. And my dad isn't the only one who won a class poll. My father was voted best looking boy. I was voted most musical boy. I got it. Okay. Not most, not most literary boy, or because uh, my presence was playing the saxophone, it dances and things. Did you have any inclination that you were interested in in poetry in high school? Covertly, yes. My daydreams of being a writer were there, but it was much more socially useful and attainable to be known as a musical person. And uh, one right. of the chapters in Jersey Breaks ends where I say, after that failed audition at a bar in Atlantic Highlands, where I stunk up the place for my colleagues, uh, 
on the way home, I changed ambitions to poetry, driving back to Rutgers from that audition. And uh, so you I, were went to Rutgers for college. I can't remember how I put it, but I said I embraced a a course and a destiny and an art that I had been trying to escape for most of my life. So you went, okay, so you went to college from Land, Long Branch. What year did you start yes. college? Do you remember what? I was class of uh, the Long Branch High School class of 1958. Now I hope if, and I hope anybody hears that says, my God, he's so battle. Uh, I, and I graduated Rutgers in the class of 1962. You didn't happen to take a sociology course with my uh, uncle Herbert Stember, any chance? No, I didn't take any sociology courses. The okay. Name is sort of vaguely familiar to me. It's like a name I've heard. He book, he wrote a he he's the one who got me into academics. Uh, he was you know, driven out of Colombia because of the basically a communist or communist sympathizer in terms of his orientation. Uh, but he uh, so he was kind of driven out of of Colombia. But he wrote a very important book, I think, called, I think it's very important, called Sexual Racism, which is tracing the origins of racism to uh, sexual, um, uh, uh, basically, um, fantasies and feelings and relationships. Well, yeah, and jealousy that uh, whites are, white men jealous of, of black males' yeah. ability to uh, give more pleasure to white women than they can. And that fantasy, that is tremendously important in one of the greatest uh, anti-racist movies ever made, Blazing Saddles, uh, written largely by Richard Pryor. And for Pryor and many other stand-up comics, that fantasy is terrifically important and also driving fantasy in the works of William Faulkner. And it's, you know, it runs throughout all these lynchings uh, to kill a mockingbird centered around a, a black man accused of raping yeah. a white female. So and I think your uncle, your uncle identified something that's central in talking about that and other matters in a wonderful essay, Ralph Ellison talks about the failure of nerve, the failure of courage, even in very writers that he, he learns a lot from, admires a lot, like Hemingway and Faulkner. He says, the only two that had the courage to deal with it all were Twain and Melville. And uh, it's your uncle saw it from a sociological perspective, and Ellison saw it from an artistic literary perspective that included a social understanding. Right. This, this is quite a racy, if I can use that pun here, book, because my uncle held no nothing back and uh the front page is a is a cartoon from the new yorker about this black panther talking to this uh 
tall Black Panther talking to a shorter white guy about how he's going to, you know, how Blacks are going to whatever, take over the country or whatever, you know, be aggressive. And uh, it goes on for many captions. And then he taught the, the Black Panther mentions he's that uh, they're going to, that Blacks are going to be sticking to white, to Black women and have no interest in white women. And the white guy says, whose face just changes, now it lights up and he says, let me be the first to contribute to your cause. <laughs> that's the New Yorker cartoon. So that's the book starts. So sexual racism, Herbert Stember. Herbert uh, Stember, yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm, I agree. It's probably I'm, still on Amazon somewhere. Yes. I'm um, reminded too, in relation to poetry, Eddie Murphy used to do a wonderful black poet character uh, who, as I remember, it usually wore a leather jacket with no shirt. <laughs> and I can remember his his poem before he read his poem, Kill My Landlord. Uh, uh, the Mary Bloom played the woman who introduces him very, very uh, fulsomely. And uh, Eddie Murphy's character says, thank you, white bitch. And <laughs> that catches that really insane destructive we it is laughable and as your uncle and ellison uh, baldwin is very aware of it it's also lethal murderous horrible the fantasy is part of something really unspeakable and this um This Supreme Court decision is has a, a, a big cultural history, and uh, I'm not going to be able to, to quote uh, Justice Brown quite correctly, but she says something to the effect that you can try to ignore this tremendous social force legally, but uh, you it's impossible to ignore it socially or in reality. Yeah, I mean, yes, Justice Thomas is claiming that the, the society needs to be colorblind, but she's saying that it's, uh, it's blind to be thinking that that's a reality, that we can actually achieve that reality it's yeah. an aspiration, but uh, well, and talking about the industry that we both work in, and uh, one thing I've noticed is that uh, I, in, in, a, in a set of possibilities that I approve of, people are talking about doing away with legacy privileges in admissions, doing away with uh, favoring uh, donors' families in admissions. Uh, uh, that's those strike me as small steps in a good direction. Yes, when they talk about doing with objective tests, I feel that's an ins uh, insult and an evasion of what we obviously need to do is give equal access to the intellectual habits and the education that lets people do well on those tests. And it, uh, my own fatally, terribly unrealistic 
naive, inept understanding of politics makes me think, as though I'm making a speech, how dare we have athletic scholarships? We have real needs in this country. And there are football coaches who make $2 million in many states of the union, the highest paid government employee is a football coach. And right. why can't we do it? And nobody else besides me is unrealistic or naive enough to say, yeah, you know, we have this guy, this jerk Tuberville now, who's a senator from Alabama on the basis of having apparently been really good at being a football coach. And uh, he, uh, he's a destructive, awful force in the country. And he's part of, a, we don't want to give a break to black kids unless this guy wants one of them to take part in the sport that often leads to uh, uh, brain injury, long right. injuries, brain damage, et cetera. Uh, so that's a, if, if what you were thinking you might get out of a poet today was uh, cloudy, naive, uh, pastel vision of the world, there you are. I give it to you. Yeah. I mean, discrimination on the basis of race or affirmative action on the basis of race. We have affirmative action based on all kinds of ca characteristics like ability to, to throw a football or catch a football or run. Yes to play uh, to block um maybe all these things will become uh somehow subject to a lawsuit i was but instead instead we're more likely to pick on the kid who gets a real high score on an objective test is that a real social problem <laughs> yeah no it's it's it could be incredibly destructive to academia but as well as to um if the kid gets a perfect score on the math SAT, if that kid could throw a football as well, just think about those math problems. Right. Tuition, no, no question. You know, go through MIT for free. Uh, that should be true in Alabama too. Yeah. Well, getting back to uh, to poetry. Yes. You you decided in Rutgers to become a professional, to be to go into poetry and to, into English, and uh, and then you leave Rutgers and get a job at was it Berkeley or where? I started where at Wellesley College. Wellesley. I went to University of Chicago, then Wellesley College, then many years at Berkeley, about ten years at Berkeley. My two older daughters graduated Berkeley High, and then I came back to uh, BU quite a long time ago now, I think 1989. So Chicago, you went for English. I was, I was an English professor there and I actually resigned a tenure job to go to Wellesley for a set of complicated reasons. Uh, the oldest kid was born at the University of Chicago Hospital, uh, mm -hmm. but that was brief, still in a way the best undergraduates I've ever taught. We're at Chicago. It's a wonderful place to go to college. Uh, you know, I've taught at Harvard. I've taught at Berkeley. I taught at Wellesley for years. The University of Chicago creates a climate where the undergraduate students want to read the books you mentioned. 
party life is not so important. There, I don't think there are many varsity sports. The weather's terrible, but there are wonderful bookstores. And uh, it's the most serious university I've taught at, was the University of Chicago. And I, I taught at Harvard not long after I taught at Chicago. And I thought it was just tremendous contrast of the intellectual standard at Chicago was something that the Harvard undergraduates had not attained. Question, how financially secure do you feel? Do you have enough money to retire? How much is enough? And if you don't have enough, how can you possibly find that money before you retire? Tough questions. One smart answer, Maxify. Maxify is the powerful online planning tool that takes the guesswork out of retirement. Maxify compares your assets against your fixed expenses to calculate how much you can safely spend every year for the rest of your life. And it shows you safe ways to find more money. Developed by Boston University economist Lawrence Kotlikoff, Maxify makes a complicated problem like retirement planning simple. Maxify. Powerful. Accurate. Easy to use. Want some peace of mind? Make the smart choice. Maxify. Visit Maxify.com today to start planning. That's Maxify with an I. M-A-X-I-F-I. Maxify.com. Yeah, in 1989, I was offered to be a professor at Chicago in economics. Uh, I was at BU at the time. We were building up the department. And uh, for personal reasons, I decided, and because I'd, you know, we had so many colleagues that I'd hired, I uh, decided to stay at Boston University. Uh, but I've always been kind of partly kicking myself. It's a great place. It's a yeah. great place. But I, too, for personal reasons, like being in Boston. I've had a wonderful time at BU, have terrific friendships and colleagues here. Uh, and the MFA program that I have mainly taught in uh, is just quite amazing. It's just beautiful. And uh, a lot of my students in that program now direct other MFA programs. A lot of them win prizes and things. Carl Phillips, one of my students, uh, just won the Pulitzer in poetry, and it's no surprise. Um, so I, having celebrated the undergraduates at Chicago, I will reaffirm that uh, uh, BU, I've had the privilege of having really, really great students. Right. Well, so definitely we, everybody wants to apply to BU for sure. And uh, <laughs> we need to sell our product here. The, um, so uh, do, you want, do you want to share a poem or two that you have uh, as we wind up the hour here? Yeah. Um, one of my best known poems, it occurred to me, is um, about an event famous in the American labor movement. Your Uncle Herb for sure was quite familiar with the scene of this poem and it's the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire. And one of the things that attracted me to the sh Triangle Shirtwaist Fire 
in a way it started it started the labor laws to do with child labor uh safety adequate uh, ventilation fire escapes etc and i was living in berkeley at the time i wrote the poem and there were stories in in the uh chronicle about these same conditions in san francisco sweatshops sweatshops where there were unsanitary conditions where children were working long hours everything that we were supposed to have abolished um, but these were asian people in the west coast in unventilated unsafe basements without enough fire protection and practically for a writer the nice thing about the shirtwaist fire is all the mythology that things that are famous parts of it may or may not have happened i met a survivor of that fire she was oh. about 100 years old her name was rose friedman and uh i asked rose she looked terrific by the way she had her hair done and all that i said how did you how did you get out she gave me a great left-wing answer she said i followed the bosses there were some <laughs> guys some guys in suits who went through an unlikely door and she followed them and they found some other way or went to some stairs you just walked down after them wow <laughs> i followed the bosses sounds like a here's, book title yeah or here's my poem shirt the back the yoke the yardage lapped seams the nearly invisible stitches along the collar turned in a sweatshop by koreans or malaysians gossiping over tea and noodles on their break or talking money or politics while one fitted this arm piece with its overseam to the band of cuff i buttoned at my wrist the presser the cutter the ringer the mangle the needle the union the treadle the bobbin the code the infamous blaze at the triangle factory in 1911 146 died in the flames on the ninth floor no hydrants no fire escapes the witness in a building across the street who watched how a young man helped a girl to step up to the windowsill, then held her out away from the masonry wall and let her drop. And then another, as if he were helping them up into a streetcar and not eternity. A third before he dropped her, put her arms around his neck and kissed him. Then he held her into space and dropped her. Almost at, almost at once, he stepped to the sill himself. His jacket flared and fluttered up from his shirt as he came down, air filling up the legs of his gray trousers, like Hart Crane's bedlamite, shrill shirt ballooning. Wonderful how the pattern matches perfectly across the placket and over the twin bark-tacked 
corners of both pockets like a strict rhyme or a major chord. Prints, plaids, checks, houndstooth, tattersall, madras, the clan tartans invented by mill owners inspired by the hoax of Ashen to control their savage Scottish workers tamed by a fabricated heraldry. Bailey, McGregor, McMartin, the kilt devised for workers to wear among the dusty clattering looms, weavers, carters, spinners, the loader, the docker, the navvy, the planter, the picker, the sorter sweating at our machine in a litter of cotton as slaves in calico head rags sweated in fields. George Herbert, your descendant is a black lady in South Carolina. Her name is Irma, and she inspected my shirt. Its color and fit and feel and its clean smell have satisfied both her and me. We have culled its cost and quality down to the buttons of simulated bone, the button holes, the sizing, the facing, the characters printed in black on neckband and tail, the shape, the label, the labor, the color, the shade, the shirt. That's, that's marvelous. And uh, uh, that's just uh, breathtaking, uh, really. Thank you so much, Robert, for uh, appearing on Economics Matters, the podcast. It's been delightful. We're going to have you back if you'll grace, grace us with that uh, opportunity. And uh, in, please. Thank you, Larry. Thank you so much. And uh, everyone, uh, we will be back with uh, another podcast shortly. Really.